The text for this morning's message is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And specifically on that phrase, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I want to pose the question that you probably have like I do, is how in the world can anybody fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? How can there be any lack? How can there be any deficiency in the afflictions of Jesus? Is not the suffering and the death of the Son of God infinitely valuable and infinitely sufficient such that all the sins of those who look to him would be covered. What could Paul possibly mean by saying he, in his suffering on behalf of the church, is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus? Well, that's the question. Now, to answer it, I think we we had best get the verse in its context, and to do that, let me read the text backward with you, as it were, starting at verse 29 and moving from 28 to 27 and so on, and when we arrive at 24, I think we may have a better handle on what Paul is up to here. Verse 29, as you can see, uh, describes Paul's uh, purposeful striving or agonizing or laboring with energy that is not his own, but uh, empowered by Christ in him. So that's what verse 29 says. The laboring, agonizing, striving that he is performing in his ministry comes with a power that is the power of Christ. Christ energizes or works in him. Then verse 28 describes what the purpose of all that energy and all that labor is. Namely, he wants to present everybody that he reaches mature or complete in Christ. He wants to reach out to people, draw them into Christ, and labor over them through uh, teaching, it says, through admonishing and teaching and proclaiming Christ, complete them in Christ, build them, and hand them over, as it were, as a love offering to, to God at the end of the age. Then verses 26 and 27, I uh, take those together. Uh, verse 26 says that all of this proclaiming and admonishing and teaching is about a mystery. See that word mystery? 
there in verse 26. And the point of mystery is not that it's unintelligible, but that it's hidden for a long time, ages and generations, Paul says, this, this mystery is hidden, and now God means for this mystery to be revealed through people like Paul. And then verse 27 talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery, and then he defines the mystery. So nobody has to have any question in your mind about what the mystery is, as though, oh, it's a mystery, I can't know what it is. Well, that's not true. It was a mystery because it wasn't revealed. Now it's revealed, and it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the reason that's a mystery that is, that it was hidden for so long, is because it was not clearly and fully revealed before Christ that the Jewish Messiah would come into the world, extend himself to all the pagan nations like us in America, and not only draw us into the Abrahamic covenant, but as a Messiah of the Jews, dwell in us and offer us the hope of the glory of the Jews. We are heirs of Abraham. And all the kingdom promises made to the people of Israel become ours because the Messiah became ours. That's the mystery. There were hints and pointers to it in the Old Testament. But the thought that the Messiah would take up resident in an uncircumcised pagan was unthinkable. And that's the revelation. He comes and indwells every person of whatever ethnic group who believes in him. That's verse 26 and 7. Now... Verse 25 simply says that as Paul proclaims this Christ and admonishes and teaches and unfolds this mystery and spreads it and draws people in, he is fulfilling a stewardship or a commission. He is a servant of the church and he is a, a steward of God's economy and he is completing the Word of God. He's extending and finishing the purpose of the Word of God into the world. Now that brings us to verse 24, going backward. And what he says in verse 24 is that all of this, this teaching, this admonishing, this proclaiming, this uncovering of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, costs him suffering. That's the point of verse 24. Let's read it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, that is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And so we want to ask now, what does it mean in this context that Paul is filling up the afflictions of Jesus. Let me make a suggestion from the context and then show you a parallel text a few pages away and uh, try to make a case that it means this. It looks to me like the meaning of filling up the afflictions or what is lacking in the afflictions is not adding to the worth of those afflictions or adding to the beauty or the value or the merit of those afflictions, but rather what's missing from those afflictions 
is their extension to the pagans outside who don't know the mystery. The mystery is still concealed, as it were, until Paul, at cost to himself, extends those sufferings to others and completes them by letting them reach people so that they have their designed effect in blessing people. Now, that's what I sense from the context. Let me try to buttress that from a parallel that in my Bible is one page away, even though it's in Philippians. And if you want to look at it with me, turn back a page or two in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. It looks like a totally irrelevant context, and yet when you do the kind of word searches that, that I like to do, you find the most wonderful and interesting things as words come together in very unusual ways in two different places. And that's what happens here in these two verses, Philippians 2.30 and Colossians 1.24. Let me set the stage for you. There's a man named Epaphroditus, he is a member of the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi loves Paul probably more tenderly, more fully than any other church. They want to bless him and minister to him. He's in Rome. He's probably in prison. And they gather up maybe money, maybe food, maybe materials, maybe books. I don't know. Some blessing. And they want to get it to Rome. Who do they choose? They choose Epaphroditus to send it. And in ministering this to Paul, Epaphroditus risks his life, evidently, and almost loses it. It says in verse 27 of, of Philippians 2, he was sick even to the point of death, but God spared him. Then in verse 29 of Philippians 2, Paul tells the church in Philippi to honor this kind of person, like Epaphroditus, who risks his life to complete ministry from person to person. And then in verse 30, he tells why he should be so honored because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. Now, here come the words. Now, I don't know what it looks like in your version, but in the original, they're almost identical words to Colossians 1.24. Risking his life to fill up or complete what is deficient or lacking. It's the same word, what is lacking in your service to me. Now, when I saw that, hmm, same kind of verb, same kind of thing. Fill up what is lacking in your service to me. I said, well, now, what, what does this mean here? And might that be what it means in Colossians 1.24? Well, what does it mean here? Let me read you from a hundred years ago what one commentator that I think nailed it right on the head said this meant. The gift to Paul from Philippi was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking and what would have been grateful to Paul and to the church alike was the church's presentation of this offering in person. This was impossible. And Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying or filling up this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry in person. In other words, the point of filling up what was lacking in the ministry of the Philippians was the taking of the ministry, full and rich with love, and carrying it to Paul in Rome and extending it to him and being the Philippians for Paul. I think that's exactly what Colossians 1.24 means we are to be concerning the sufferings of Christ to the world.
What was lacking in the sufferings of Christ was not value, was not merit, was not beauty, was not worth, was not sufficiency. What was lacking was that Christ no longer in himself could make the personal presentation to all the, all the nations. He's in heaven at the Father's right hand. We, however, are called the body of Christ. And what Paul is teaching in verse 24 of Colossians 1, when he says, I rejoice in my suffering on your behalf, in thus filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus is, I'm like Epaphroditus. I am taking the love offering of the sufferings of Christ and I am offering them to those who didn't have any personal connection with Jesus. And then here's the real clincher. I do it with my sufferings. My sufferings are the extension to you and the bearer of Christ's sufferings so that you might not only hear about in the ear that one loved you and suffered for you, but see in me, his body, his sufferings for you. Now that's an awesome teaching. I feel it as awesome as a pastor. I feel the call on my life from that teaching as frightening and gloriously wonderful. You hear what it's saying? I believe the general teaching is this. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God intends for the afflictions, the love offering of suffering that Christ gave once and for all cannot be improved upon in its merit and worth and sufficiency for sinners. He intends for that love offering to be handed to the nations and to your neighbors and your friends through your afflictions that they might see it and mark it. There is no sustained, loving Witness to this Jesus without sacrifice. Just think of it. Think of it. Think what it would cost you this afternoon. Now, in America, we might just think in terms of, well, I wouldn't be able to do this, I'd have to do that. Or it, I would get embarrassed, or uh, I might lose my job, or... I mean, most of us aren't thinking in terms of losing our lives. And yet, every one of us knows that it at least inconveniences... And that's the point of this text. Yes! <laughs> Precisely! Do you love like He loves? Will you suffer like He suffered? Will you bear afflictions like He bore afflictions? This teaching, I believe, is the same as the teaching of Jesus in Mark 8.35 when He said, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, We'll find it. Now, what I hear there, especially as I'm hearing it from Colossians 1.24's angle, is Jesus means for the gospel to be carried to the world by losing our lives. That's the way he means it to be done. And now, from verse 24 of chapter 1 in Colossians, I have a new understanding of why he would say that. 
Namely, it completes the afflictions of Jesus by showing them, making them visible, extending them. It isn't kind of an artificial connection, sort of an accidental thing that happens while you're doing something else. It's part of the extension. It's part of Jesus. It's part of his body. It's part of evangelism and missions and love and ministry. We're going to talk a lot this fall. The staff has been working hard and thinking hard about what the focus this fall should be. And this kind of just leads right into it. It isn't just evangelism. It's how just to suffering people. What do you say to somebody who's lost a loved one, a baby? What do you say to somebody who's depressed and hospitalized? And, and we, we have the same withdrawal effects at that level as we do when we're witnessing to unbelievers. Well, I wouldn't know what to say or I wouldn't know what to do or I'm, I just... And we won't risk anything. We won't suffer. We won't take affliction. And thus Christ is made invisible to the world. Christ, according to verse 1, 24, Colossians, means to be visible in the afflictions of His people as they extend themselves in love to unbelievers and to one another. And look at verse 24 again, lest we think that the Calvary road is a joyless road. Paul says, I rejoice in sufferings for your sake as I fill these afflictions up. The Calvary road where we follow Jesus is not a joyless road. It's a painful road. It is a painful road. It is not a joyless road. The happiest people in the world, I say this from personal experience as I've seen and biographies as I've read and church history, the happiest people in the world are people who have seen the mystery, Christ in them, the hope of glory, and have been so satisfied with the indwelling Christ and the hope of glory that they are free to suffer for other people and lay their head down at night and sleep like a baby. The happiest people in the world are not people who try to be comfortable in America. The most miserable people in the world are rich people. Just as many people jump off the Coronado Bridge in San Diego as off the Brooklyn Bridge in New York. The poor and the rich. Money adds not one millimeter to happiness. Just as many rich people go to counselors as poor people. Vastly more, let's say. What makes you happy in Christ is to follow Paul in knowing Christ is within, I have the hope of glory, and therefore I will fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending myself at whatever cost to minister to people, especially those without Christ. Joseph Son, I don't know how many of you have heard of him, I met him in a brochure called The Theology of Martyrdom a few years ago, and then Tim Essenberg just gave me a tape. And I listened to it, Tim, in the car the other day. And uh, he said, I just couldn't believe it. I said, I should just play this tape on Sunday morning instead of preaching. Uh, But he had a phrase in there that I think I probably won't forget, so I want to use it. Maybe it'll be the best summary. He said, 
Jesus' cross was for propitiation. Now, I know that's a big, heavy word. And let me just, for all you kids and and, and grown-up kids who don't know that big word, propitiation means what God does to take away his anger. If God takes away his anger from people, he propitiates himself, makes it okay. So he says, the cross of Jesus is for propitiation. Your cross is for propagation. That sticks because it rhymes. The cross of Christ is for propitiation. The cross you're called to carry is for propagation. And that's right. That's what this verse, I think, is saying. So let me close with a few stories. So you can see from people's lives how this works itself out. What would be examples today of people who rejoiced in suffering for Christ and his body that the afflictions of Jesus might be filled up in the sense of being made visible and extended to those for whom they were meant to to bless. When I was down in Trinity in May working on this book on missions, J. Oswald Sanders, some of you have heard of him and read his books, came to Trinity to speak, and I interrupted my very tight, quiet schedule to hear a great man. So I snuck over to the chapel and heard this 89-year-old veteran missionary speak. Just to give you a flavor of how he has sold out to Christ, he has written a book a year since he was 70. Nineteen books. Isn't that great? Since he was seventy. Isn't that great? I mean, do do any of you want to start over? It's never too late to do something significant for Christ. Only a few like him write books. But when you're seventy, mind you, you've got a calling on your life. Okay? At Bethlehem? And I think most of our seniors know that. I'll just say it again so those growing into that, at any stage in your life, you got a calling for the next one, two, five, or ten years. And God needs to use you. That's, that's the parenthesis. The story that he told was about a, an Indian missionary, very poor, walking barefoot from village to village, preaching the gospel in his hardships. One day, he decided to go to a very distant village, and uh, it was a long journey. The roads were rougher than he thought they would be. He got there, and his feet were a mess, you know, torn and blistered and tired. And he went into the village, and there was still daylight, and so he, he preached the gospel. And he was rejected and scorned. They laughed at him. And he, being as weary as he was and as painful as he was, he he just went out of town, found a shade tree, and lay down and went to sleep. And uh, he woke up later on, startled to find himself surrounded by the, the village hovering over him. And at first he was frightened, and then the headman of the village uh, said that... They had come to examine him while he was asleep to see what they could see about him. And when they saw his feet, 
they concluded he must be a holy man and a loving man and that they wanted to hear the message that he was willing to suffer so much to bring. Uh, When I heard that story from Oswald Sanders, I thought, that is this text. That's the point of this text. It was his blistered, beautiful feet that extended the reality of Christ's afflictions to these people such that they could see them. They saw Christ when they saw his feet while he was sleeping under the tree. That's the point. Here's another one. I read this in, uh, it's a story by Michael Card, who told the story in, in Virtue, the woman's magazine. And it's a story about a Maasai warrior named Joseph who came to the Billy Graham uh, Conference for Itinerant Evangelists in Amsterdam a few years ago. And he told this story, and I'll, I'll, I'll cut it short, though it was longer in, in the magazine. Joseph was confronted by uh, an evangelist in Africa one afternoon as a pagan, and he was shared, shared the gospel with him, and God touched him, and he was wonderfully and powerfully converted right there on the spot. And the Holy Spirit began to move in his life and give him a burden to share with his own village what he had seen of Jesus and the forgiveness he had experienced and the hope of glory that he now knew. And so he went to his village and started going from door to door telling everyone about the cross, the suffering of of Jesus and the salvation that he offered. And to his amazement, he's a very simple man, he didn't know what would happen. They were enraged. And the men grabbed him, pinned him down, and the women beat him with strands of barbed wire until he was unconscious. And threw him out of the village. And he didn't wake up for a day or two. And when he woke up, he was delirious, but miraculously protected from the animals and found water and refreshed himself. And concluded, I must have said it wrong. I must have left something out. And he rehearsed in his mind again what the evangelist had told him about Christ and his life and death and resurrection and hope and forgiveness. And he said, try again. Surely I must have gotten it wrong. Nobody would respond to Jesus this way. And he went back in and exactly the same thing happened again. They beat him. They reopened those wounds with wires and they threw him out. And uh, if the first time was remarkable that he survived... Michael Card said the second time was miraculous. He resolved when he came to and recovered to go back. And this time they did it again. Only one difference. Just before he went unconscious as the men were holding him down and the women were beating him with these strands of barbed wire he saw tears in their eyes. And this time, instead of waking up at the uh, water hole outside the town or village, he woke up in his own bed, surrounded by people struggling to keep him alive, and found that the whole village had turned to Christ. That's found in the April issue of Virtue, 1991, if you want to see the whole story. Now, I couldn't think of a more vivid portrayal of Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings 
for Christ's body as I complete the afflictions that he had by extending them to others. I think knowing that Christ calls us to affliction, Christ calls us to suffer, Christ means to extend his own suffering through our suffering to the world and to our neighbors is very stabilizing and freeing. It's very stabilizing. It makes us stable to know this because then it's not surprising if we hit this kind of opposition. It's freeing because to know this is to know that when you have the hope of glory and the indwelling Christ, you can escape the seduction of American prosperity. You got that phrase now? The seduction and deceit of American prosperity that makes these stories and texts like this seem like they're from Mars. To get illustrations of what sacrifice would mean, we have to go outside America often. So let me tell you one more story, and this is just a little simple one about sacrifice in terms of supporting the gospel and extending the gospel, not by giving a little cream off the top of your luxury, but by digging deep into your life. In Haiti, there's a missionary named Stanford Kelly, and he tells the story of a Thanksgiving festival in a local church, and uh, the people were invited to give just a simple Thanksgiving offering to say that they love the Lord, and then that would be used to minister to people in need who don't have the gospel or don't have their basic necessities. And they were gathering this, and they found an envelope for $13 from a man named Edmund. Now, $13, when this happened in Haiti, was three months' income. It would have been tantamount to about six to $10,000 cash gift showing up in our offering plate. And so uh, Kelly, who knew that Edmund was not a wealthy man, uh, went to him and said, uh, I don't want to be nosy, but we're really thankful for this, and I just wondered what it meant and how in the world you did that. And he showed him that he had sold his horse. He sold his horse to get the $13 or the three months wage, and he gave it for the sake of the gospel. But Kelly probed and said, but why didn't you come? You weren't there at the festival. And he hesitated, uh, and he probed further and pressed him, and his answer was, I had no shirt. I had no shirt to wear. And what we're seeing in these three weeks is that God is calling us to prepare to suffer first because of the moral and spiritual effect of the refining of the fires of suffering. That was two weeks ago. He's calling us to prepare to suffer also because of the intimacy effect. We go deeper with Jesus. We know him better and his value that was last week. And now today he's calling us to suffer because what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not their merit, not their value, not their worth. What is lacking is the personal presentation of those sufferings to the world. 
or to a brother or to a sister or to a neighbor or to a colleague. The personal presentation of those sufferings in the form of our sufferings. If we think that evangelism will happen in this country and missions will be completed in other peoples, I don't think we understand this verse. God is calling us to finish the Great Commission and to reach our neighbors, not just because it might or accidentally would bring suffering, but because that's part of the demonstration of who Jesus is. Let's pray. As I asked the Lord this morning, what might people feel a sense of need to pray about? I don't want to put any limits on what you might approach the prayer teams over who will stand here at the front and pray about anything. But these two things came to my mind. One, uh, have you been praying about a crucial contact in your life? I know one on the staff that's happening this Friday that's tremendously crucial. And, and you've all been thinking about people in your life that you might want to talk to. and So I just think God might be touching you this morning to ask the prayer team to give you effectiveness and courage and love to follow through on what you've been praying about in reaching out to another person. And the, and the other thing that came to my mind was some of you are facing some significant life decisions regarding this whole issue of ministry and how to make your life count the most in caring about other people and extending the gospel and the love of God. And that might be something you'd want to ask prayer for briefly. Father, I know from just an experience I had last night as I was walking uh, through the neighborhood that it is so much easier to preach and to teach and to study about these things than to take on the sufferings of Christ in the inconveniences and the threats and the embarrassments and the awkwardness and the time that go always with sharing a suffering Christ with others. So, Lord, I ask for the miracle to come down and the power to be given, just as Paul said in verse 29, that he's laboring not in his own strength, but in what Christ mightily works within him. Grant that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.